Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone and welcome to today's podcast episode and it's a special episode because we have Bill Madisoni here. For those of you who don't know, Bill Madisoni was a McKinsey partner who ran marketing, he ran alumni relations, he, I would say, rebuilt McKinsey quarterly and turned it into what you know it as today. He became a partner at McKinsey within two years. He was a partner there for about 20 years. He was a mentee of Marvin Bauer whom he knew very closely and he talks about him quite a lot. And he also came up with the very effective strategy that allowed McKinsey to differentiate itself and leap ahead of BCG and Bain when those two firms are doing very well in the market. So it's a very unique opportunity to hear from someone that worked with one of the pioneers of McKinsey. And Marvin Bauer was a man who created McKinsey. Bill worked with him. But also, you get a chance to hear from Bill himself who, in my opinion, is also one of the pioneers of McKinsey because he developed a lot of the thinking that allowed McKinsey to separate itself from the pack. Now, let's begin with the interview. Have you ever been to a Tesla dealership? No, I've been in the car, but I've not been to a dealership. Well, the one thing that strikes you about a Tesla dealership is it doesn't look anything like a dealership. Because typically yeah. when I t- need to take my Mercedes in for a tune-up or anything, you've got to drive to a dealership, which is usually in some horrible industrial part of the town. Yeah. You've then got to sit there and there's nothing to do because it's a dealership surrounded by other dealerships over a huge space. And you basically have to make it into a day-long activity. Right. But the Tesla dealership looks like a gallery. It's just one room. There's no service center. There's two cars parked in there and they serve some very high-end coffee and cappuccino and espresso. And I just think to myself that, you know, people always talk about the technology behind Tesla and so on, but they've almost made this car out to be like a consumer product. It's so accessible for you to get your hands around it. Mm -hmm. You can buy it online. You can visit the dealership. It's pretty unbelievable how they've changed the way cars are sold. Yeah, and it'll change the way cars are serviced as well. Yeah, I think they now send a service truck to your home, right? Yeah, and only a few cars try to, I mean, Porsche will pick up your car take it in and bring it back. But of course, you really pay through the nose for that, I think. You know, I mean, we still have our one little Porsche and I stopped taking it to the dealership. I take it to a little guy down the street who changes the oil and doesn't charge me a ridiculous amount to do that. So the thing about the electric vehicle space, auto space, versus the gasoline engine space is it is going to redefine service. And that dimension of service, which is not a new one, you know, Mercedes has touted their service for years and their warranties, etc. But Tesla really can change the game because the technology is so different. The car is, in many ways, much simpler. I remember, you know, I had an old Porsche a long, long time ago, and it was so easy to service. I could almost change the spark plugs, and that's saying something, you know. And then when the new Porsches came along, the mechanics hated them because they couldn't do anything with them. They had to put them on a computer. You know, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with the car until they plugged it into the computer, and the computer told them. And that was just the beginning of, you know, taking the man out of the machine, both the driver and the mechanic, and you were at bay. You know, it was a whole different uh, market. So 
you make a really good observation. I think that's what could make Tesla and the electric vehicle market a lot more attractive. It'll figure into the whole new definition of what a luxury car is. It'll also be part of the new dimension of what a mass market car is, too. You know, we talk about all the fancy features of Tesla, but one of the things that I notice is that it really caters to people that know nothing about technology. All technology follows a certain curve in the way they improve and become commoditized. I mean, think about early laptops and PCs in the 1970s. You had to buy the components and assemble it, right? Right. And only the most advanced users who were willing to, you know, play with a soldering iron and not burn down their house was going to do it. And then Apple came along and made it so simple to just buy a product and start typing with an easy interface. And that's how technology evolves. You actually know a technology is about to hit mainstream when the most technologically unsophisticated audience can use it without worrying about it. And that's the thing that struck me about the Tesla. It's so easy to use. It's almost intuitive in the way it operates. I expect it to have much more dials and gadgets and buttons and calibrations to be done to tweak the car, but it does everything for you. Right. Now, that all said, I read a few articles about Tesla to prepare myself for this discussion. So I was thinking about it. I thought what I said in the memoir about technology transition applies just as much to the automotive space as it did in my memoir to transitions like semiconductor chips. The same principles actually do apply. One of them being the transitions are never linear. A couple of those articles I read about Tesla, the analysts keep saying, when is this linear improvement and increase in the share of market of the electric vehicles, when's that going to happen? And when is Tesla going to get more of that improvement? And the answer, if you're really watching that market, you should not be thinking about linear improvement in the um, share of market the electric vehicles are gaining. Because the progression for technology always is, just as you were just saying, it's slow, fast, slow. At first, the technology and the functionality it enables is slow. And we're probably just getting to the end point there because Tesla is starting to sell. But it's going to, I think, it's going to speed up, or it may. If it follows the typical technology-fueled market transition, we're going to see electric vehicles and Tesla start to grab a lot more of the market. And that is because of this S-curve that we talk about in the memoir. You know, technology is not a linear occurrence. It's an S-curve occurrence. And then it'll slow down as the technology reaches maturity. But we've got a long way to go. Then when you say technology, what are you talking about? Well, with electric vehicles, it's really batteries. You know, batteries are coming way down in price for these cars. So the Tesla may, in fact, be able to make a mass market car sometime soon. Right now, they're still at a $45,000 price point. They've got to get it down to 33 to at least attract the mass market if that's where they're going. And that's what they say. That's at least one place where they're going. So it's really looking at the technologies behind the car rather than the car itself to understand when we're going to see dramatic improvements in the performance of these cars that will attract A, luxury buyers, and B, mass market buyers. One of the things that, that struck me, though, as I was reading some of these articles is, you know, in Marketing Saves the World, my primary point is we're dealing with market spaces, not places, and those market spaces are defined by dimensions. And the automotive industry, one of the great industries of the world, it's been around for well over 100 years. The dimensions of that space have been pretty well defined at this point. Mileage per gallon of gasoline, 
time it takes to go fast, zero to 60 in how many seconds? Safety, you know, safety that and technology that keeps you from changing lanes dangerously. That's all in the space. And the latter is a new dimension we're hearing more and more about. Technology has become a big part of the automotive space. It's not like Tesla is the only player bringing technology. There's a lot of new technology in the automotive space. But the new electric vehicle space strikes me as totally confused, in part because the leaders of some of these players want to do too much too fast. I mean, Elon Musk is, you know, he's talking about producing a car that first doesn't use gasoline. It's going to be cheap, although he's really focused on luxury, the luxury segment, which, by the way, is always the segment that introduces new technology, always. Even wiper blade technology started out with, you know, in, in the luxury space. It didn't start in this market space. So they're talking about the electric vehicle space, but now Musk is adding the self-driving car mm -hmm. space to the whole mix. And then that space is confused all by itself. Are we talking about cars that can park by themselves are, are going to be safer? Well, that's in both spaces, the old and the new. But now you're talking about cars that can go from coast to coast. You know, Musk is talking about, we're going to build a car in a year that can, you know, it'll pick you up in California and deposit you on the curb in New York, you know. And so now we have a space that's an electric vehicle space with a self-driving space. And then Musk, to top it off, the icing on the cape literally is solar paneled yes. car that, you know, don't even need batteries or, or they have backup batteries. So the space, the dimensions of this crazy new automotive space are thoroughly confused and, and what functionality is going to be offered and who's going to buy it and whether it's going to be luxury or mass market is really anybody's guess, I think. If you're an investor or even if you're just a buyer of a car, what are you going to buy? You know, if I had to make my bets, it would be safety is going to be a big deal, especially as I get older, I worry about the fact that I might change lanes dangerously. You know, I'm not seeing as well as I could. Uh, so safety is going to be a big thing, driven by technology. But that doesn't favor the old player or the new player. Convenience is going to be a big deal, especially in the electric vehicle space. It's not just what the cost of. The cost of a fill-up is, is not going to be the price of the electricity. Uh, it's going to be the convenience of being able to get that fill-up in your garage or some station that's really easy to use, you know. You know, you just don't hear about range with gasoline cars as much, even though you do worry a little bit about it. But it's just not a big deal because there are gasoline stations all over the place. So as we said in Marketing Saves the World, the, the dimensions of the space really determine the winners and losers. And it really, it'll be very interesting to see what dimensions emerge. Behind that, what technology will enable those dimensions and what will consumers buy? You know, some things that they don't think are important at first, but eventually do become more important to them. Now, you raised some good points there, because speaking about space and dimensions, right? You know, yeah. We always try to think about along what dimensions do electric cars compete. And I was thinking of some things that we maybe don't think about enough about how we analyze Tesla and other electric car companies. I'm going to use my mobile phone as an analogy here. So I have one of these um, relatively fancy Apple iPhones, quite expensive as well. If you try to buy these things off the open market, they cost about $800 to $1,000. So they're quite pricey. Now it's called a phone, but I don't use the phone feature almost at all. 
I really, if someone calls me, I probably wouldn't answer it. I'd let it go to voicemail. And then there's a Google feature that converts all of the voice messages into text. But the point I'm trying to make here is that I use my phone more as a mini computer to run my life. Mm-hmm. It's got all these apps in to you know access the cloud server, upload documents, transfer documents, and so on. But I never use the phone for its primary function, which is making phone calls. So what I'm thinking here is, will or is Tesla winning so far, or will car companies win in the future? Not because of their primary function, which is to move people around, but because of the ecosystem of capabilities they have that enhance convenience but have nothing to do with whether or not the car goes from point A to B. Is the fact that a car can go from point A to B the reason why people buy a Tesla? Or is it because of all the other functionality that the car has? So the reason I ask this question is because will it really matter in the future how good your battery is? Or will the battery become a point of commoditization? Maybe Samsung makes batteries for every single electric car company. And all the cars compete on all the other functions. That have nothing to do with moving from A to B. That's a really interesting observation. You remember there was an article that the Boston Consulting Group published that said, we're looking at the rebuilding of our infrastructure in the wrong way. We're looking at it the same way we would look at your handheld. Yeah. And the way the old manufacturers of automobiles would. And that, and that is, how many more cars can we get on the road? Yeah, yeah. And get from point A to point B. And instead, BCG says, we need to get different players around the table, government players, regulators, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. road builders. They're not going to be excluded. But the whole function that needs to get maximized is access. Yes. And what if your handheld, in fact, contributed mightily to improving your access to things? And it wasn't providing you just with the option of movement, but with the option of access and different ways of getting things. It's all around us now, for goodness sake. You know, when was the last time you picked up a case of wine at your local wine merchant? I don't remember. It's all shipped. Even food is shipped to you. Amazon will deliver all your groceries. Yeah, yeah. So this notion that the auto market can be thought of in isolation from the whole subject of access is, I think, wrong. But but that may be, you know, that's going to be, is that 10 years down the road? I don't know. But in the meantime, some of these other dimensions, we're going to go through them. I mean, we're, we're going to go through a period where people, A, will decide to buy an electric vehicle, and they pay, then pick the manufacturer depending on the range that the vehicle has and the ease of accessing power at that point. We're going to go through that period, I think. We're going to go through a period where the batteries themselves are going to make the car cheaper or not. Right now, Tesla seems to be focused on this, you know, we're going to build a mass market car. But in fact, it's a luxury car. The new sports car they're coming out with is 200000 I'd like one. I mean, it really looks great. But, you know, if I had to pick that versus uh, a new Mercedes GT, I'd still give, go with the gasoline engine. I want to hear that car. And, you know, who knows, maybe with electric vehicles, we're still going to have sound that's artificially manufactured. That's a very good point. I mean, customization, why wouldn't people customize sound in their cars? Yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? As you become wealthier, you want more things that cater to your unique tastes. Yeah. Now, but for the investor, not the car buyer, but for the investor, or they may be the same person. Keep in mind, the example we use in Marketing Saves the World, at least one of the examples, was this transition that Clay Christensen 
describes in his book, you know, The Innovator's Dilemma. We had semiconductor manufacturers in this country. Take the top 10, you know, and they built semiconductor chips that were bought because they were dense. And the denser, the better. The more information you could get on them, the better, because that meant the computer could do more, more, more. And then something happened in the market. On the fringes, there was there small segments that didn't care about density. They cared about and capacity. They cared about durability. They wanted semiconductor chips they could put in handheld devices. The whole mobility movement began to emerge. And all the big manufacturers of the dense chips said, that's a small segment. We're not going to worry about it. We're going to listen to our current customers. And those current customers, much like current automobile analysts, I would say, yeah. are saying, don't worry about them. Keep making denser, denser, denser more chips. You know, keep doing whatever the law was that said every year we're going to double the capacity of chip. And guess what happened? Within 10 years, mobility became the dominant dimension of the space. And every major manufacturer of those dense chips mm -hmm. went out of business. Well, well Intel is struggling for that reason, right? Yeah. And so you say, am I saying that General Motors, uh, Mercedes, they're all going to go out of business because electric vehicles will just have you know, the, the dimensions of that new space or where they were not going to be able to compete. I don't know. But, you know, if I had to bet on the big current behemoths of the market space right now, the only player I'd give the big advantage to, it'd be Volkswagen. Mm -hmm. Because Volkswagen has announced it's going to invest $50 billion over the next five years in the electric vehicle space. They're the only manufacturer that that's our future. You know, electric vehicles is the future. We're making huge commitment, and we're realizing how the not just the supply chain needs to completely change, but our whole psyche, our emotion, our concept of ourselves mm. needs to change. But we're going to produce 50 new models of electric vehicles within the next 10 years. The other players are trying to do what those chip manufacturers did. They're trying to do both things. Yes. They're making you know, the, the classic mistake you mentioned in your book, not moving yeah. fast enough. And I don't think I could be wrong. Of course, we all could be wrong. But my guess is if you're going to try to play it both ways when it comes to electric versus gasoline, you're going to lose. And uh, I don't know which one of the electric vehicles manufacturers is going to emerge as the leader, whether it's Tesla or this, you know, this new company that's just emerging in China. But my guess is, with the exception of Volkswagen, most of the current players, as we know them, will be on that list of defunct dinosaurs that used to be automobile manufacturers. Well, it's quite difficult to be good at two things, right? It's hard enough to be good at yeah. one thing. So you've got a company there with a limited balance sheet, limited ability to borrow, maybe what, 10,000 engineers in the R&D department. If a yeah. company says it's going to be good at both, that means it's going down the middle and cutting everything in half. And then divide, you basically have two companies that are competing for resources. And I'm not saying the decision is easy or it's easy to know when to make that transition. But if the overall strategy is to be good at two things, that's a big risk against a company that's trying to excel at just one thing. Right. And if, and if that company can manage to get the cost of the car down into the non-luxury space and they start getting scale, then they're in real trouble. The old players are in real trouble because they just can't, they can't compete in this space. As you said, you know, you find Tesla in some artsy area of town. I discovered that too. I went down to see the Swiss painter 
in New York, you know, and, and it's in the gallery district. And as I was looking at the painter, I looked across the street. What is there? There's a Tesla dealership, you know. It's not out in New Jersey. Uh, yeah. It's not in the far west side of Manhattan on Ninth Avenue where you find the Mercedes and the BMW dealership. It's down in Soho. You know, that's a different demographic. Now, whether that demographic is somehow going to survive and morph into a mass market demographic, I don't know yet. There's a lot of transitioning to be done there. But I don't see... Mercedes probably has the best coffee machines in the automotive industry, but they're still not in the the space that Tesla is trying to define. Right? No, not, not yet anyway. Well, the thing with Mercedes and all of the large companies is they operate across a spectrum of price points. Yes, they do. Yeah. And when you operate across a spectrum of price points, which price point do you want to be defined by? Because you can't be luxury, mid-market, and upper luxury all at the same time. No matter how many ranges of cars you produce, one of those is going to define you. And you have to pick where it's going to be. But I want to touch on a point you made in, in your memoir. You raised a quote from some one of your colleagues where he, he asked the question, what would happen if the price of bandwidth went to zero? Right. I think to myself, what would happen if the price of batteries went to it being a non-game changer whereby everyone could access it? It's a similar question, right? Yeah. And you say, well, that, that can't be because bandwidth is different than power. But at what point does it become irrelevant? Yeah, think of printers. I mean, HP basically gives you a printer for free so that they can hook you into buying cartridges. Right. Now, 20 years ago, if you told someone that the business of printing would change whereby the hardware became a giveaway, a loss leader, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. Yeah. And again, a whole different marketing strategy results. Yeah, exactly. Which then asks the question, you know, why do people buy a Tesla? Can Tesla win in the long term? And maybe a better question is, is Tesla a great product? Or is it a good business model? Mm. Because the history of business is that, you know, if you have a good product, but you don't have a winning business model to get it into the market, you're going to fail anyway. Yeah. But that, I think, leads you to the conclusion that if Tesla screws up and it can't make the car it needs to make for the mass market, which is where you eventually have to be to be successful, except for niche players, who is going to do it? And how do they do it? And, And what business model will succeed? You have to admire Tesla for reconceiving everything. Terms of buying the car, servicing the car, powering the car, etc. But do they have the right combination of things? Uh, and frankly, I'm not an expert on the automotive industry, but those are the questions you have to ask as a marketer, and, and those are the questions you need to ask as an investor. Yeah, I mean, you know, a great analogy for this is search engines when they first came out in the 1990s. So you had, you know, Alta Vista. You had Yahoo. There were so many of them, Ask Jeeves and so on, right? So I think we all knew that search engines were going to become a big player in the internet because they helped us find things. But until Google came along and built a business model whereby search engines could be profitable, search engines were something companies gave away for free. I mean, they they didn't charge for it and they didn't dominate the space. So analogy I'm making here is that maybe Tesla is not who we should be looking at. Maybe electric cars are coming. Tesla just happens to be the best iteration of a business producing electric cars. But even if they fail, the trajectory has been set and someone will pick up the mantle. That's right. I think it's a great point. Somebody will pick up the mantle and and will go through three or four phases of redefining a space that will move from automotive through to movement without driving to access without movement. Think of those three phases, and there are probably more. The idea that the automotive market is confined by 
the need to move from one space to another. It's going to last for several years, but you better have your eye on the ball for something totally different, driven by this, whatever you want to call it, Boston Consulting Group, but called it access. But there's something else. And that takes us back to, you know, marketing saves the world. The latter chapters talk about these multi-stakeholder problems and markets. This is going to be a multi-stakeholder market where government regulation is going to be involved. I wish they weren't, but they will be, and it'll screw things up for a while and muddy the waters when it comes to dimensions. But they will be involved. The classic manufacturers of gasoline cars will be involved. The new EV makers will be involved. All the new technologies will be involved. How do you put rhyme or reason behind that market space? That's where, you know, how are you in the book? You need a marketing mentality. By the way, a marketing mentality that sees how value gets created and does and does not confine it to how value used to be created. The automotives, how do they create value? They moved you. And they moved you at a price per mile. And they moved you in a style that you liked. That definition of value is surely going to change. And maybe the dissociation of movement from the automotive market is going to be one of the biggest. And the inclusion of much more safety and intelligence into it is going to be how you're going to need to think about this over a 10-year period. And do you do it with the classic players, the current value chains that dominate the industry? Nope, you don't. Uh, you're going to need some new, really new thinking. Boy, and Elon Musk, even though I criticize him for confusing things by marrying solar power with safety and driverless cars and non-gasoline cars, give him credit for being such a visionary and seeing what the possibilities are for this space. I mean, this is, it's genius. Now, whether he deserves a 50 multiple in the stock market right now, I don't know. And, and you know what? I don't even care. I think the fact that he's making us think, and as you say, he's setting a new stage for the world, and it's a stage that's going to create so much more value uh, in an exciting new world. I'll come back to the title of my memoir, you know, Marketing Saves the World. If you call that kind of visionary creation of value marketing, that's why it's going to save the world. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you talk about multi-stakeholder models. If you look at what Tesla has created, you know, with the supply chains, distributors, R&D centers, and so on, any country trying to take that on is going to have to have some degree of government support because it just costs so much. The United States is in a fortunate position whereby we have enormously deep and sophisticated capital markets whereby someone like Tesla or someone like Elon Musk can go out there with a vision and raise money from institutional shareholders and individuals. But any other country in the world trying to do that is going to have to require government intervention. Because how do you fund that entire ecosystem? It's going to be difficult. You know me, I'm biased on this. I'm a libertarian. I don't like to see markets get confused by subsidies. But there will have to be. I mean, even the computer started off without Al Gore, but it did start off with government involvement. It needs to be seeded by government. Yeah, but, you know, we'll need to redefine what seeded means. I don't think it means subsidies. Look how much debate there is now about Tesla because it's going to, you know, the consumers are going to lose their subsidies to buy the car. There's going to be, therefore, less of a connection to the environmentalist movement, another confusion in the marketplace. To me, yes, government has to be at the table, but the less at the table, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe another way of saying it is that government needs to create an environment whereby risk takers feel comfortable taking risk. Yeah. That's about it, right? You just create an environment where people feel that they can be rewarded for the effort they put in. Right. And we're going to have to have 
how many new technologies to pull this thing off. Um, countless. There's so many things. It's countless. Yeah, it's thousands. And most of them are going to fail, and they should. That's the way things work as you create new markets, new services, new products. And at the same time, though, the government, to me, the role should be of making sure the people who win get rewarded, making sure people who think they have an idea see enough of a reward out there to take a risk. We don't want to decrease risk. Uh, we want to increase it and increase the number of risk takers. You've heard all this from me, and you heard it from Milton Friedman back in 1930. So nothing new here in that regard. But it works. It does work, yes. And I think even when you think about it on a global basis, there's still an awful amount of wealth out there. And don't you want to attract it to this industry that's redefining itself rather than attract itself to coal, steel, you know, the current behemoths. And I'm not criticizing those industries. They've been wonderful industries for the U.S. and for the world. But you want to attract new capital to these new possibilities. And that is quite exciting. And even though, as I said earlier, I think, you know, the, the next stage in the automotive market is not for the driverless car, but for the safer car. But all this will evolve. And what used to be called safe will, I, I suppose, will soon be driverless. You know, but give that a while. Sell the safety for, for now. I do want to raise one point, which you've kind of touched on, and we've never really made it explicit. But, you know, we speak a lot in the memoir about social entrepreneurs. It's a big theme throughout the entire book. And in a manner of speaking, you know, Elon Musk is doing a lot of that, trying to save the environment and so on. But I think one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed this as well, there's a lot of people who start businesses around the idea of saving the environment or fixing some social good like access to education, but they don't really have a good product but they expect you to buy their product because of the social intent. And what I've yeah. noticed is that, you know, the thing with Tesla is actually a good product. People will support the social good if the product itself works. Because the market is smart. It's not going to support something indefinitely just because you're trying to do good, but you don't actually have something that can win in the market. Right. And I do feel right now there's a big trend in the world whereby everyone's launching a business with some social bent, and they assume that the fact that they are socially conscious is a good enough reason to get consumers to buy from them. And I think consumers are smart. I think they look at the product first. Does it add value? Does it work? Is it better than anything else out there? And then they say, okay, I'm going to buy it for that reason and the fact that it you know, helps the world in some way. And I hope people listening to this, you know, you want to build businesses that solves the world's toughest problems. But at the core, you need to have a good product and a good business model. Right. Because consumer good will only go so far. After a while, they just don't want to deal with a product that doesn't work. I certainly agree with you. I can't stand the idea of buying a product because it's good for the environment, being the basis for a product market strategy. It's it's a terrible idea. There is a segment of people who are good-hearted, wrong-headed, and rich enough, you know, to say, oh, I'll buy one of those cars, and the functionality I get for 200000 bucks is nowhere close to what i get if I bought a different gasoline-powered car, for example. But they're well-intended, as I say, and they care about the environment, and they think this is a way of saving it. But the fact is, you can't sell $200,000 cars, and there aren't enough people to buy them. There aren't enough people who care about the environment to buy $50,000 cars. So you may be able to use that segment to get you some other place in a different market space, but don't count on it lasting very long. Don't count on government subsidies lasting very long. you got to create real value. Now you could say, well, yeah, but we're taking carbon out of the environment and so forth. It's very hard to price those benefits and put them into the price of a car. So no, I think you're right on track and I would never advise anybody to sell some new product based on the fact that it's saving us from global warming.
Well, Bill, I think that's one of the best discussions I've had about Tesla. Let's hope someone forwards this podcast to Elon Musk. <laughs> like I said, I still admire the guy. I think he's, he's brilliant. He will succeed with or without government subsidies. And marketing, as he's practicing it brilliantly, is going to create an enormous amount of value. And it will save the world without doing it explicitly. And by making cars that delight consumers. That's the key thing. Yes, yes. And, and that are safer, you know. For us, though, for us old-timers, you know what I'm thinking about? I wonder what the price of the XK120 will be today when it, you know, gasoline cars are truly prehistoric. <laughs> Just, will I be able to buy one cheaper? Maybe. Probably. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll become not. a commodity. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you could, you could print one. They have these printable machines that can print products. Yeah, I, I don't really understand that. But, you know, if you can print an XK120, I want to know how. Maybe we should do that in our next podcast. Thank you so much, okay. Bill. Anything else to add? No, I'll think of it as soon as I hang up. But we can pick this up. Let's have a reprise on this one when I have a chance to look at some notes. Okay, take care. We'll speak soon. Okay. Take care. Ciao. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.